I think we're going to get started because I'm not sure exactly um, how long this is going to take or what material we actually uh, we have over here. And it's a new type of topic. So I have to see how, uh, how it's going to go. Um, you see the title at the top, I assume. Yeah? Right. Okay, good. So uh, the topic over here is something that uh, we started working on um, a number of, uh, I guess, weeks ago at this point in the, in the Kola by us. And it's something which is, uh, you know, with uh, certainly with some uh, financial people on board over here who are present over here. So it's an important thing to, uh, to be mindful of. Uh, as it says, uh, the, the title is Prenuptial Agreement for a Second Marriage. And we're not going to go just for the sake of time. We're not going to go through all of the, uh, all of the backbone. But let me just uh, give a, a brief into introduction to why this is uh, such an important issue. Uh, Halacha says, I think we touched upon this uh, a few weeks ago, that when a couple gets married, regardless of whether it's the first or second marriage, but when a couple gets married, so there are a lot of, and there are numerous financial agreements which exist between the, uh, the couple. Hate to go ahead and break down a loving marriage into something which is dollars and cents, but uh, marriage is broken down into dollars and cents, or can be broken down into dollars and cents. So the things which are going to be significant to us, the uh, the issues which would uh, which commonly arise, certainly by second marriage, marriages, is, are, are the following. So one halacha that you need to bear in mind is that the husband um, is going to go ahead and he inherits his wife's property. If the wife predeceases her husband. So he inherits her property. So what could happen is in the in a second marriage is the wife, let's say she was widowed. So she has a number of children. Number of children grew up in the uh, in the house. They've uh, you know her, the the children's parents have been living had lived there forty years or so, something like that. And now the uh, the father passes away. The mother is living in the house. She wants to go ahead and get remarried. So there's a risk, according to Allah, that if she then predeceases her second husband. The second husband inherits the house and the children get nothing. So you can imagine the children are going to be none too happy about hearing the, the possibility that uh, the house that they grew up in is going to end up by their stepfather. And then after their stepfather passes away, it ends up going to their step siblings. So they are not going to be too happy about uh, that type of uh, arrangement. And they don't want that to, uh, to take place. On the flip side of things, the other uh, end of the, uh, the, uh, the equation um, so, and therefore, there may be an interest, I should say, in the uh, in making arrangements that the husband should not, and that he's going to say, listen, we're going to get married, and I agree, I'm not going to inherit your property. Your stuff will be yours, my stuff will be mine, and we'll just, uh, we'll just leave it at that. So, what is, is it possible to go ahead and make such an arrangement? And then a second scenario, which is important, is that one of the halachas is that uh, certain property which the wife brings into the marriage, if you remember, we've talked about that, that was called nichse malug. So that property, she retains title, the wife retains title to that, but the husband has the right to payros. He has the right to, or literally mean the produce, but he has the right to the profits from, uh, from that. So let's say the woman entering the marriage owns a bunch of real estate, a bunch of residential buildings with uh, many units. So the rent, the earnings, the net, which uh, is earned off of those uh, rental units. So that's considered to be payros. And uh, the husband would have their ha uh, halachic right to go ahead and take all of that, uh, all of that, uh, all of that profit. 
And obviously, she's not going to be too happy uh, about that. That could end up being uh, lots of money that, uh, that she would forego. And he may have certain things which uh, he doesn't want his wife to be able to, uh, to take. So there's agreements which go both ways. And the question is, is it possible to go ahead and sign some sort of prenuptial agreement whereby both parties understand and commit and say that we are going to, the assets which I bring in remain mine, the assets which you bring in uh, are yours, and we're not going to co-mingle those, uh, those, uh, those assets, our, our previously owned assets uh, at all. Like the Mishnah in, uh, in Perkevos, shali, shali, v'shalach, shalach, <laughs> we're just going to go ahead and we're going to leave it uh, as that. That's not what the Mishnah is referring to, but that's essentially what, uh, in, in many cases, uh, at a second marriage, that's what they would uh, like to arrange. Okay, so let's see what, uh, what is an option and what is not an option. So here we go. See, uh, I didn't number the, the paragraphs, but over here. So the first one is Ebenezer, Simon Sadi Base, Steve Zion. So we start over here. So Hisna Imashalo Yerashena. The husband goes out and makes a stipulation that he's not going to inherit her property. So, So as long as he agrees not to inherit her stuff, so that halacha is binding. But in the event, if he didn't specify, so in the event that she owns property, so he would have the right, in the case that we gave, to collect the rent from the rental units which, which she owns, from the, uh, the, 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 the Airbnb houses which she owns. Now this is something which uh, could also be relevant by, uh, a little bit more relevant by a first marriage, when the Kala's father goes ahead and gives her, let's say, an apartment in Yushalayim. She's moving to Yushalayim. She's the, they're going to be uh, studying or whatever in Yushalayim. But it's really the father is the one who buys the apartment. So the father says, listen, I'm not so sure I trust that, uh, that, that new son-in-law of mine. So I want to go ahead and make a stipulation that in the event that, um, that, she, that, that she dies without children, that the property is going to go back to her father. We don't want to go to his family. We wanted to stay in our family. This is our family uh, property. And I don't want to go ahead and let it go to another family. So Hakokayim. So we say that any stipulation of that sort about the Yerusha, where property is going to go, all such stipulations are binding. Now, here you have, and this is what uh, had to be coming at some point. Now we have this major qualification. In English, we would say, but in, uh, in Lashon Kodesh, in Lamdesha terminology, we say, when is the above true that they could make a stipulation not to inherit the property? It only works in the event that that stipulation or the agreement is made before Nisuin, that means before the Shev Brachos, which are said under the Chuppah or the Chuppah or the Yichud, while she is technically in Arusa, not just that they're engaged, but this is after he gave her the ring and said, So if in between the time, this uh, you have to go back in your, in your head to, uh, to uh, Tachasas, which you go to. So how much time is there in between the time that the Chassan says, and the end of the Shevrachas? So if we're lucky and the rabbi doesn't speak, so this is going to be all in the, uh, the person reading the Ksuva knows how to read it quickly. So this is going to be all of maybe five to 10 minutes. So we're saying under normal, and by a second marriage, certainly it's going to be even a shorter period, a, a shorter gap of time. So Shulchan Aruch says the only, t- the only 
window of time in which such a stipulation, these types of stipulations could be made, is in between halachic erusin, and the end of the Shev Rachas before they go ahead and break the glass. Or they could go ahead and they could write it up into the Ksuva at the time that they're going ahead and they're getting married, which would also have to be incorporated into the language which the person is going to read. But in the event that they make the stipulation after they're already married, it's now a battle. So then the stipulation does not work and since the, the stipulation is invalid, the husband is going to um, inherit her property nonetheless. So here we have this major thing which is going on. One second, Alan. So we have this we have this important stipulation which for many couples is essential because they don't want to run into financial problems later on and they certainly don't want to create machlokas uh, later on. They want to make all of this clear. But right now from Shulchan Aruch, the only gap in time that we have to be able to make such a stipulation is post Erosin before Nesuin. Just that small gap in time. Yes, Ellen. So it, say the, the, in the situation with the apartment in Jerusalem that was given by the father of the bride, is that something that the husband also has to agree, agree with? The stipulations, do they have to be agreed with by both parties? Yeah. Now, these, these, these are all, uh, we're, not lo- we're not looking at this in terms of shalom bias issues. Uh, clearly at this point, uh, you know, shalom bias is, uh, oh, actually for this one, I, I shouldn't say that. This is something that everybody's just trying to protect their financial interests. Um, you know, they, 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 they watch uh, Mrs. Bezos, uh, uh, Mrs. Bezos, was that, who walked away with how many billion? Many. They watched they watch her walk away with, uh, you know, with half of his fortune. And as a result of that, that makes everybody nervous that, hey, wait a minute, if I'm making all this money, either one, if I'm making all this money and the other one's going to get some of that, if the relationship breaks down or somebody predeceases the other. So that makes a lot of people very nervous. So um, in terms of the apartment in Jerusalem, it doesn't appear from this that the tonight is going to work. It says, it doesn't say anything about it tonight to the contrary. Right. So uh, for, for, the, for the sake of trying to get all this done in 45 minutes. So you see, I started, I, I quoted over here, Steve Zion. So if you want to see all the different stipulations about these types of things, so you have to see Sifalif, Sifais, Sif Gimel, Sif Dal, okay. Sif Hay, Sif All right, but they can basically stipulate anything. Um, they could try, but you need to, as we're going to see, so they need to do it, they need to use correct language. Language is going to be very important. And they need the, the more, what, what our purpose is tonight is that they need to make sure they do, do it timing-wise correctly. Now, obviously, nobody mm-hmm. wants to interrupt the, the, uh, the chuppah in the middle to go ahead and take out this prenuptial agreement and have them sign. Now, it is good for if you need uh, more kibbutim. So now, in addition to Tanayim and signing the Ksuv and all that and the Shabrachas, now you have two people who are signing the, uh, the prenup. So, uh, you know, and you could read that out loud also, I guess, if they, if they want to go ahead and they want, to re- they want to read that. But it's something which would certainly be a little bit awkward to go ahead and to, uh, to stop the Chasana in the middle to go ahead and sign this prenup in between the Kedushin and the, uh, and the Nesuin. Now, well, uh, I, I, I thought any financial transactions say, uh, you know, a, a star helps in case you need proof. But but if it's a if it's a verbal agreement, it's also valid. Right. So th- th- that's true. So that was excellent. So now let's see the next source over here, this Beishmul. So why does why does such an agreement not work once they're already married? Once it's already post Nisuin, he cannot go ahead and say that. uh 
that uh, that I'm not going to Yarshin anymore? Why can't he uh, just uh, say, you know, I, I, I relinquish my rights. I forego my rights. And why wouldn't that be binding? So the, the Beis Shmuel explains, and this is just based on the Gemara, but he says, because at that point, once they're already after Nesuin, he already is an heir. Halachically, he has that status. And to go ahead and try and relinquish his rights at that point, it's an interesting perspective, which we say is It's like a son saying, I'm not going to go ahead. I'm relinquishing my rights to inherit my father's property. But you can't do that. So you're already a son. The Torah already assigns the son those rights. And therefore that Yerusha is something which is going to happen automatically. You can gift it away afterwards, but the halacha that the son is going to Yarshan his father, that's an automatic halacha, and that's not something that you could renounce uh, just by itself. The Lomahani, and in such a case, Lomahani, the Roy Liroshu, just making a declaration that I'm, I don't want to inherit the property, it doesn't make a difference. It's ineffective because it's just words against something which is uh, reality is that you are a Yorish. Ubekinian, and now he says, now, okay, if I can't do it verbally, so let's do like we do with the sale of comments, make a Kenyan with the rabbi or something, lift up a pen or a kerchief and go ahead and make it the agreement effective in that way. So to that, the Beishmuel says, He says that you can't make a Kenyan on that because a Kenyan only works, as we've talked about before. You can only make a Kenyan on something which already exists in your possession. And being that you didn't inher- the son did not inherit his father's property yet, he can't go ahead and make a Kenyan to give it away or to do anything with it because it's not his yet. So he's stuck between a rock and a hard place. He can't, it's too late to relinquish his rights, but he can't go ahead and give it away because he doesn't actually have it yet. And therefore says the Shmuel, same thing is going, to be do, is going to be true. The same parameters are going to be true when we discuss the husband's right to inherit his wife's property. And even if, let's just put it in our, our 21st century, uh, you know, Western ideas, even if she were to go ahead and write a last will and testament, gifting away or bequeathing her property to another person, and the husband signs on that saying, yes, I agree that all of her assets are going to go to save the whales. So it's completely ineffective. It doesn't work anyways, because once he's a Yoresh, so he's not going to be able to go ahead and relinquish his rights. So this explains, the Beis Shmuel explains why post-Nesuin, it's already too late for the husband to say, I'm not going to Yarshan, I'm not going to benefit from your property, it's going to stay in your family, and you don't need to worry about it at all. At that point, it's too late. So now, the question is, which is really what all of us would, would do, is why can't we do this when they get engaged before he says, Hare now, legally, that's when everybody would do it. They would do it before the marriage actually takes place, have all those documentation in place. And that way, when the marriage actually takes effect, it takes effect in a sense with these conditions in place, saying that, uh, that he's not going to be a Yorish, that he's already relinquished those rights. So why can't he relinquish his rights in advance? Afterwards, it's too late. But why not do it in advance? So he said, so, so for that, we say that the reason why you cannot go ahead and do that, actually, I didn't even include this over here. The reason why you can't go ahead and do that is because before Arison, so it's not his. He can't re- you can't relinquish something, which is Davashlobalola. 
In that case, the, all of the rights to inherit her property or to be able to get the profit from her property. So that doesn't exist for him in any halachic sense whatsoever. And being that it doesn't exist yet, it's not a right yet which he owns. So he, you can't go ahead and relinquish something which is not yet yours. So if you do it too early, the problem is that it's not yours to give away. It's not yours to deny because you have nothing. If you wait till after Nisun, it's too late because it's already in your possession. And the only, so the only window in time, the only gap in time with which this is going to be effective is post Arison, where it's almost there, the rights are almost there, but it's not too late that, uh, that you already have it uh, fully. So that's that going to example? be the, 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 the time frame which, uh, in which it's going to have to take place. Yes, Bob. Suppose somebody did do that uh, uh, at the time of engagement, and, and they did it in a way with uh, civil lawyers so that it would be binding in a U.S. court. Uh, do we say Dina de Malchuta Dina, or do we say it doesn't matter because uh, uh, the, uh, he doesn't have the status or they don't have the status uh, before uh, Kedushin? Um, so I, I don't think Dina de Malchus is going to is going to override over here. Uh, it may very well be. It depends on which opinion that you follow, but it may be that the husband yarshning his wife's property is a Doraisa, something which may come from the Torah, and as such, Dina de Malchus is not going to be able to override something which is Doraisa. But we'll have we'll we'll, we'll have that idea expressed uh, somewhat in, in in a little bit. Okay, so on the page of Shulchan Aruch here, so the Pischei Tshuva. So he goes ahead and he raises the question, which is the fact that uh, everybody here undoubtedly knows of couples who have gotten married and they signed such documentation before the Kedushin actually took place, because that's what people do. People do that, uh, you know, sort of kisader. They do that as a regular uh, course, just because it makes everything much easier between the, uh, between the couple, certainly in a second marriage. So Pisrei Tshuva quotes, I'm the Savior Yeshua's Yaakov, Shetam Alaminag Shalanu. So the Yeshua's Yaakov expresses surprise at the common practice, which is that they write this, this, this phrase, shtari siluk, is what we would translate as a prenuptial agreement. So it's a shtar, it's documentation of siluk, of, of removing yourself from your rights, relinquishing your rights, foregoing your rights, uh, renouncing your rights, probably is best. After shiduchin, after they get quote-unquote engaged, but before they're married. And the reason why is that now back in the time of Chazal, if you remember, so Kedushin would take place on one day and the Nisuin could be as much as a year later. So there's a lot of time in between. Back in the time of Chazal, there was a lot of time in between the Kedushin and the actual Nisuin to go ahead and get this documentation done. It's not like you have a five or 10 minute window. So back in the time of Chazal, so it wouldn't have been so, uh, so difficult to go ahead and pull that off. But he says, But nowadays, we do the, both ceremonies, we do it once. And therefore, now we're going to run into a problem. Because before they're married is generally going to be before there is erison, before they're halachically betrothed. And as we saw in Shulchan Aruch, at that early stage where they're engaged, but it's before Kedushin, Lomahani midi hasiluk. So then re- renouncing your rights isn't going to be effective at that point. It's too early in the game to go ahead and renounce those uh, rights, like the Ramah rights. And he says, the Kasav, he writes, 
So he suggests maybe a justification for the practice. But he concludes, He says, in the event that a couple comes with such a documentation in place, he makes up shower. That he's going to go ahead and uh, find some sort of uh, uh, mediate or negotiate some sort of uh, 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 compromise between the two parties. And because it's not clear how exactly this should work. Should we disregard it altogether because it was too early? Should we honor it entirely because of what we know their intent is? So being that it's not clear what we should do and we don't really have a good justification. So therefore he makes a pshara in that case. But clearly this is going to be an issue. This is an issue going back to the time of the Pisgah Tshuva, according to Shus Yaakov, this is something which goes back pretty far. So how are we going to go ahead and, uh, and make these, uh, uh, can, can this be done? Okay, so the last part that we're going to have from Shulchan Aruch over here is the Avne Meluyim. The Avne Meluyim is the same author as the Ketzos. So when we're doing Chosh Mishpat, so we're going to discuss the Ketzos. When we're doing Eben Ezer, so you have the Avne Meluyim. And he goes ahead and he expresses, he has the same question. He says, He says, nowadays that we are, it's, Common practice is to do the Kedushin in the Nisuin all together in one shot at one time. So it's not going to help to go ahead and to sign this prenuptial agreement. The Kodama Kedushin Lomani Silo. Because if you do it before the Kedushin, it's ineffective because it's not yours yet. You can't renounce something you don't have. And then once it's after the Chopa, so it's already post Nisuin, and it's too late to go ahead and renounce your rights because you already have them fully. But feel a Kenyan, even if you tried to use a Kenyan of sorts, it's not going to work. And therefore, uh, how exactly are we going to, number one, how can we justify those who have already done it? And is there some, is there a way that we could feel comfortable moving forward, telling people that they could, if they follow this procedure, it's going to be effective? I mean, it just seems to me that if, if, if there was a moment in time when it was valid and during that moment in time, they both had in mind that that's what they want, shouldn't that be enough? I mean... Meaning if they made the agreement ahead of time and then they never renounced that agreement. Right. And, 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 and now that now the Yerusin takes place and now it's OK and they both still have the same intention. What, 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 what would the problem be? OK, good. So we're going to see a Chazanish about that shortly. So uh, hold off on that. Very good. So he says. Um, 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 for the sake of time. He says, okay, let's read it over here. He says, um, after uh, presenting what uh, some other approaches of some of the other achronim, he says, he he says, but the, the problem that we're going to run into, where well, one of these, uh, the, the, uh, the earlier Achronim, the Avodos Gershunim, one of the things that we're going to run into is there may be other Rishonim who, uh, an, uh, uh, who, according to whom, we may be able to justify this. But the fact that you could find Rishonim that you could use to justify this doesn't really help because we pass them like the Ramah, right? When it comes to distilling through the different Rishonim which are out there, once the Ramah says, I'm going to follow such and such an opinion, so that becomes pretty authoritative, and it's difficult to go say that I'm going to pass differently than the Ramah. 
And he says that, but maybe what happens is that the Kavan, the Kvarnagu Mikodam Lismach Hashtar Siluk Shanasu Kodam Erusin, being that everybody assumes that if you write such a prenuptial agreement even before the Erusin, that it's effective. Based on those who originally enacted it, who may have this practice may have already been in place before the Ramah wrote the Ramah. So there may be a, a, a practice which was rooted in Rishonim, which although the Ramah didn't, uh, didn't agree with it, but there may be uh, communities which continue to do so because their practice or their, their custom in this regard, their approach in this regard existed before the Ramah. So therefore, they have what to rely on. So he says, Maybe this is going to be one of those cases where there's a phrase which we use, that even though the halacha may, clear, may say that we pasca like this opinion, if common practice is to follow a different opinion, so the minog is going to override that. So even though generally we don't like to go against the Ramah, where everybody's behaving differently than the Ramah, so we're going to say, Minog Mevata Halacha. Afalpi, this is an amazing thing which we say, but in Choshemishba we say these types of things. Afalpi, Shuhu Lokidin. Even though it's actually not halachically uh, justified, because the Ramah says we don't pass like that opinion. But he says, there, Venira Lefianis Daiti, he says, for this reason, he says, being that there's a lot to question, there's a lot of uh, 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 grounds to question the validity of such an agreement which is made before a rusin. So for that reason, he says, he says, what we do is, is we write into the language that the Hassan went ahead and accepted upon himself. When he renounced his rights, he did so with the severity of cherem chamer, that if he violates it, he's going to be excommunicated. And with the weight of a shvua daraisa, as if he took an oath, he, he, he committed himself with an oath, like we talked about last week. He made an oath saying that he's going to follow through on his word and he's not going to, uh, to yarshan, he's not going to inherit. And we add that in there just to give a little bit more halachic justification to what he is doing. Okay, but that is that's uh, but that's uh, that, that's how it's going to that's how the Avnim Bluyim suggests it may work according to the Avodas Shuni. But there's a lot of reasons why the Achronim are not very happy with this. Uh, primary of them is is that it would be very strange that there should be a minig which goes against the uh, the Ramah. Okay, so this is this issue is there's a a journal called Hayasha V'Hatov, and this is from, as you see, Chelek Zayin, the Simen Chaf, or She'elo Chaf, over there. So he says, yeah, so we're going to read the, the, the rest of what we have over here in terms of the source are going to be from this uh, this particular journal, which was just easier to take it than pulling out the uh, the sources in the uh, the original. So he says, um, um he says, and I can't highlight it as we go along, so I just have to try and follow the uh, the mouse. But he says that the words of the Avodah Sagershuni Tzrichim Bir need some explanation. The that based on what he said, that really we paskin like the Ramah, but common minog is going to override that halacha, even though it's not halachically so. 
He says, where do we find such a thing? Where do we find precedent to say that we're going to have a, we're going to uh, uh, justify a custom which goes against the Ramah's clear psaq? Because because the whole reason why we say that renouncing your rights before Erosin, before you get to, uh, to Kedushin, doesn't work, is is because you can't renounce something which doesn't exist yet. So it's one thing to say that there's a minog which, uh, which, uh, which is different. But over here, it's not as so much that there's a halacha, that the minog is going to override a particular preference in halacha. The halacha is rooted in the fact that it cannot work. The mechanics don't work. So how can you have a minog which makes mechanics that don't work, work? That doesn't, that, 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 there's no such thing to go ahead and create a working mechanical item if the components don't work, work with one another. And therefore, it should, therefore, there's no reason that, that we should be able to say, we should be able to in, invoke this idea of minag mevatel halacha because this is a mechanical issue, not a halachic issue. And then he says, a little bit closer to what you were talking about, Bob, he says, Maybe what we mean is, is that the common practice to do so is going to be like the Kenyan Situmta, the Kenyan, which is common practice amongst, uh, amongst merchants, which allows Kenyan, which the Torah doesn't necessarily recognize, but they become binding because that's what, the, that's what the people in the industry do. So maybe in this industry of marriage, so people will go ahead and they'll make such an agreement uh, called a prenuptial agreement. But he says, first of all, if you read the Avodos Agarishuni in, inside, his language just, certainly doesn't sound like that's what's going. And then he says, Ode, which is skipping ahead, Ode, he says, now it's at the top of the, of the over here. He says, this idea of situmta, which, which validates a Kenyan, that only works when there's an industry which is going to recognize that means of acquisition. Like in the diamond industry, saying mazul bracha. So in the diamond industry, that's recognized as a binding agreement. Okay, good. The Khan, but when it comes to marriages, where do you find that merchants will go ahead and have such an agreement where we can say, well, this is common practice in this industry, and therefore it's binding. There's no such, a, there's no such, it, it's not applicable when we're talking about Evan Ezer in this way to say that there's going to be such a Kenyan. And then he says, on top of which, there are many uh, posting who disagree with it. Um, um, okay, we'll put that aside. So he says, so how are we going to go ahead and justify this? So he says, he's going to present two justifications. He says, so he says we can base this on what was quoted in the name of the Chassam Sof in the Minog, where the husband is going to renounce his rights even before Erosin. Why? He says back in the day, now this is also something which we're not so, so familiar with, because we are 21st century, 20 and 21st century uh, uh, people, and we're not Hasidim. So, but back in the day, uh, the way that, they, that couples, and by Hasidim, they still do it, the way that they formalize their engagement is what the Tanayim. We do the Tanayim also at the, at the wedding. We start off with the Tanayim, then we do the Kedushin, and then we do the, uh, the Nisuin. But back in the day, when the couple would get, quote-unquote, engaged, 
they would actually sign a Tanaim agreement, which is a commitment that they're going to go ahead and get married eventually. And that Tanaim, they were bound by the parameters, whatever was listed in the, in the Tanaim, in terms of how much each of the fathers are committing to give the couple to get them, uh, to get them going, to get their, uh, their marriage started. So such a Tanaim, so each party accepts upon themselves with a cherem, a ban, an excommunication if they violate it, Ubeknas, and there's also there's going to be a financial penalty in the event that one violates that as well. So therefore, being that once they get engaged and they have a tanayim in place, So that means that once a tanayim is signed and they're engaged, nobody is allowed to simply back out and change their mind. Doesn't work. So once they're already uh, in some way bound to carry out, to go forward with the uh, the marriage, so sagi So the Sam Sofer says we could consider this as if it's already post Arison. The whole reason why you can't go that normally before Arison, it doesn't work to renounce your rights, is only because if you wanted, it's not yours. You have no rights to it, and if you want, you could just walk away from the from the commitment in the in the first place, anyways. So being that you could just walk away from it, how could you renounce something which you're so distant from where you're not bound in any way, shape, or form to, to, to follow through? But once we say that with a tanayim and with this cherem, this excommunica- the, the threat of an excommunication and the knas and the penalty that you can't just walk away, so that already brings them close enough that he could renounce his rights at that point. The very fact that neither one is going to be able to just walk away from this agreement without excommunication or a penalty, who that already gives him a little bit of a grasp. He's already just about there having those rights, enough of those rights, or he's close enough to those rights where it makes sense that he could renounce them. And that already is enough to say that he's going to be able to renounce those rights. Okay, so he says, so that's what they, they say from the Chassam Sofer. And, and then he says, over here, right by this line, he says, He says, it's logical that the same thing is going to hold true nowadays. Even though Artsnaim doesn't have any such language which says that if somebody backs out, they're going to be excommunicated. As long as there's going to be even just a financial penalty for backing out, that already is enough. And then he goes and he supports this from other uh, sources. But a, a difficulty may be the fact that Artsnaim, the way we Ashkenazim do it, uh, without a cherem or without any sort of financial penalty, so that may also be, uh, it, it, that may not be uh, 100% reliable as a means of relinquishing rights. So now we get to what, uh, uh, what, uh, what Arthur had mentioned. He says, mm-hmm. He says, another way to go ahead and justify this is based on the Chazanish. So now the Chazanish offers a novel interpretation of the Ramah. And he says, when the, when the Ramah writes that you cannot renounce your rights before Kedushin, HaKavana, the intention is, 
What that means is if the husband agrees to renounce his rights, so he's not bound by that yet, and he could change his mind as long as they're not yet engaged. So they get engaged in June. The wedding is going to be in October. So in June, after, the, uh, after they're, they're uh, quote unquote engaged, he says, you know what? I'm going to renounce my rights. So anywhere between June and October, he could say, you know what? I changed my mind and I want to invoke those rights. I want to restore those rights. So being that they're not yet engaged, he has the ability to change his mind and restore those rights. So that's what the Ramah means where he says that if you renounce your rights, it doesn't work. It doesn't work because you could still change your mind. Aval of but in the event that he renounces his rights before Erison, and he never changed his mind, and then they get engaged. He says, and nobody went ahead and changed their mind yet. Exactly as you said, Art. So it turns out that the Erison is being done under those conditions, which he said back in June. Because since nobody changed their mind, nobody said anything to the contrary, so we assume that that agreement which they had continues all the way through the Erison, and now that sea look, that re- renouncement is applicable, is now kicking in at that point. The Chal and therefore it's going to be effective even Bishas Erison, even at the time of it, or it will kick in formally and irrevocably at that point during the, the, uh, the small window in time between the Kedushin and the Nisuin, that is uh, finally going to uh, take full effect and, uh, and they won't be able to retract. So based on that, based on that Chazonish, that approach, that's another way that we could go ahead and we could justify it. The problem with the Chazonish is the Chazonish himself in the next paragraph goes and acknowledges that most Achronim disagree with this idea. So although it seems logical to him that that would hold true, uh, being that many authorities go ahead and disagree with that, so uh, it may be a little bit difficult to go ahead and rely upon. So what are we going to do, Lemaisa? So here he writes, He says, in the event that they actually want to make sure to get all this paperwork and all the agreements done before anybody says, so he says, Gamken Rova Poskim says we can rely on the majority of Poskim, who say it will be effective after they're engaged, Ukanal, like we said, Im in the event that they went ahead and they put a financial penalty in place if either party decides to back out of the engagement. So as long as you have that in place. Then he says, you have rove postkim, you have the majority of postkim who say that such a thing is going to be, uh, uh, such a renouncement is going to be effective. But now he says, Uliyeser says, let's say today, kolashitos. But if you want to have an even more reliable approach, which is going to satisfy all opinions, that nobody should be able to say, listen, uh, I claim that I have the rights to it. And if you're trying to take it away from me, so the burden of proof is on you. And which is our problem. And also another solution in the event that you get engaged and the Tanaim doesn't have any sort of excommunication or financial penalty for somebody who backs out of the engagement. So what are we going to do for our purposes? So Hitsanu, so for this, what we suggested is. 
what you have to do is you have to make an agreement, an, an obligation, create a fictitious debt in accordance with what's called the Chachme Sfard, the Sfardi, the uh, Spanish Chacham. So what does that mean? So what they're going to do is the Hainu. She's Isha. That the husband goes ahead and he declares verbally or he writes up a declaration saying, I'm renouncing my rights to inherit my wife's property. That's part one. Now part two is he says, She's Isha, The husband goes ahead in paragraph number two, the husband says, I hereby admit with all of the validity and all of the power vested in me and a based in Chashuv and all sorts of things, that I owe my wife an amount equal to her assets. So if she has a, a half a million dollars of assets, he'll admit that, that. If she has a million dollars of assets, he'll admit to that. But he, he makes an admission saying, I owe the amount of what her assets are worth, or perhaps even more than that, just to make sure. Now, if he's creating this fictitious debt, so when does the debt have to be paid? That debt be, is due as soon as the husband re, uh, 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 reneges on his agreement to go ahead and to renounce his rights. So if he ever renounces his rights, he's now admitting that he owes her half a million dollars, a million dollars, two million dollars. So as soon as he renounces his uh, his relinquishment, as soon as he, uh, sorry, as soon as he reneges on his renouncement of her rights, and he says, you know what, I insist that I'm going to go ahead and inherit my wife's property. As soon as he files that motion, that triggers the $2 million debt which he owes to her. And even if she's not alive anymore, she passed away because he's trying to yarshin. So that money, that debt is now going to be owed to her heirs. Not him, but it's going to be owed to her heirs, whoever you know she she designates. So then, if he goes out and tries to cross her on this and actually inherit her property, it triggers a enormous debt, which makes it not in his financial interest. You make the debt high enough that it's not worth it for him financially to try, to renounce the that to uh, to renege on that renouncement. And then But in the event that he actually honors his renouncement of the yerusha and he doesn't try and pursue any of the rights of his wife's property, so that is going to, that will uh, re- release him, that will relieve him of that, that debt. And that's a mechanism which we use in all sorts of agreements, if you, if you remember, if you've ever heard me talk about it. That's what we use when it comes to, let's say, a, a, a non-compete agreement or a non uh, uh, non-compete really, a non-compete agreement in order to give it halachic validity, we also come up with a similar type of thing of this chachme svar, this takanas chachme svar, where you admit to a debt and the debt will be forgiven if you do what you say you're going to do, but in the event that you don't do what you say you're going to do, then the debt is going to kick in and that debt is going to be so great that it serves as a strong disincentive to go against what your, uh, your original agreement was. And that would be the best way that they write. And they have on the next page, actually have the whole nusach of the, uh, of the language which would, which would be used. And it's much more thorough, as you mentioned at the beginning, Art, in terms of the peros and peros perosein and all of, those, uh, all of those various things. But they have a very thorough nusach uh, to make sure that it should be something which is acceptable and honored by all parties and nothing that somebody should be able to undermine by claiming that it's not uh, halachically uh, valid. 
but it's something which is uh, which is important uh, because what uh, in our experience what has happened is is that people don't think about this ahead of time and then after they're married and then suddenly the uh, the uh, the issue about the commingling of assets and that nobody really wants to do that in the first place anyways arises so one if they don't realize so after they're already married it's too late to do anything the whole uh, discussion over here being able to do something is how to be able to do it even before the formal kedushin, but nobody has a solution really for post nisuin to go ahead and start relinquishing those rights. That is going to be uh, that's going to be very difficult to go ahead and uh, be able to uh, to justify. All righty. Thank you, Rabbi Shaffel. Excellent. Excellent. That's well, a, thank you. That, uh, it's kind of like when the uh, when you're setting up a will and there's daughters, 